Tonight we are on chapter 7 of Revelation. We aren't going to get through a whole lot of verses tonight, only the first four verses, because there's going to be kind of a lot of side things that are going to go along with this, um, all of which I think is going to help build a foundation for later, especially when we get into the 144,000 of Israel here. And so... um, We're just going to jump right into it here in chapter 7, but before we do, to remind you that this is the commercial break. If you remember on our timeline, the sevens of Revelation will be divided up into four, two, one. The first four following a theme, the next two another theme, but before, between the sixth and the seventh of every one of them, there's a commercial break. And so it's like you're watching a TV show and you, they, right when the cliffhanger comes, it goes to commercial. And you start talking or thinking about something else, and then when the commercial's over, you pick up right back where you left off. Chapter 7 is that commercial break. We're going to pick up right back where we left off after we get done with this, where you're going to then be looking at the seventh seal. We've already now covered the first six seals. So... Um, That is basically a a little bit of a timeline type thing there. So uh, let's start at verse 1. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. So here we're seeing... The first thing is after these things. After these things meaning after those six seals. So we still have a timeline as far as John's vision goes though. He just saw that and now he's been taken to this commercial break. And what he sees are four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now I think we're all, you know, adapt enough to uh, adept enough to in scripture to know this is not a flat earth and even if it were the four corners of the earth doesn't make sense if we're on a pancake this is just a way of speaking and uh metaphorical aspect and it is done all throughout scripture and even today it is used in the same verbiage that we can see people saying all four corners of the earth it just it's northeast west and south or in essence, to say the whole earth. And so that's all this is saying. But there are four winds. Now, it seems to be kind of a literal wind. Some people might say that these are four different spirits, you know, those kind of things that come because we see, uh, at least in the Hebrew, here we're reading Greek, but in the Hebrew, wind and spirit are the same word, ruach. And so when the wind dries up the land after Noah's ark, I think it was truly a a real wind, but it was also the Spirit of God behind that. Maybe it's the same kind of thing here, but I do think there is certainly a literal aspect to it. And the wind is not going to blow on the earth, on the sea. I mean, can you imagine not even on the sea? We talk about weather and we think we've got it figured out pretty well. You know, this is caused because of this, and that's caused because of that. Well, I don't think we know much of anything. 
We, we see patterns and we can understand that, but we can't make it. We can't make the, the weather do what it does. Now, I know that there is the conspiracy theory out there that the government is controlling our weather. Now, I'm not saying that man can't take dominion over the creation. We do do that. I mean, we have, I know a friend of mine actually seeded clouds. Okay, that, there is some science to that where we can go and do some cloud seeding. But it is not an exact science. All right, it is not. I'll tell you who's in control of the weather. God. He says in Scripture, and we just saw that last night. I didn't even realize we had the hail we had here till you guys got here tonight. I heard it on our window, but it didn't seem like it was much. I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning. It wasn't much. But you can see that he brought hail on one field, but not on the other. Apparently, I can go to the end of my driveway, which I didn't even make it that far today, and see that there was hail. But in my yard, I did not see that. The Bible says that he brings rain on one field and not on another. God is the one that's in control of this. And so do not give the government any more power than it deserves, which isn't much of any. And so... This image is also seen in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 49. It says, I will bring against Elam the four winds from the four quarters of the heavens, and I will scatter them to the four winds. Now, I don't think that's talking about the same thing here, but I just want you to see the same verbiage that's used to understand what he's talking about. He's talking about this is going out throughout the whole world. In other words, what's going on here is not just in Jerusalem. This is a global issue happening here in the very first verse of chapter 7. Daniel is going to give us further insight maybe into these winds. And if you go and read all of chapter 7, I've just got a little bit here, but all of chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. Not Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel himself. And in his vision, he sees these four angels coming up out of the the waters that were being churned up. And what he sees then are four kingdoms. You know, the Babylonian, the Medes, and the Greeks, uh, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. But then it talks about pretty much the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. It talks about this one horn that is going to be larger. And we, we see this as the Antichrist. But then right after that, it says that the Ancient of Days comes and takes his seat, takes his throne. And so in Daniel's vision, where it's talking about these four angels coming out of this churning waters from the four corners of the earth, we see a connection to end times, to the Antichrist and to the Lord taking his seat ready to judge and bring judgment on the earth. And here we see it in Revelation. So there's definitely a connection. Here's what it says in Daniel 7, 2 and 3. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So here, the four beasts are coming. In Revelation, we see four angels holding back the wind. So it's not the exact same specific detail, but I do think we're looking at the same general concept of end times here. Uh, 
a couple of ideas that I have on this, and I don't know which one's right, if any of them are right, but maybe these winds have a large part to do with the coming of the false prophet and the Antichrist. When these winds here in Revelation are being held back, is it being held back to keep them from doing things, or is it being held back to allow them to bring uh, issues on this earth? I, I don't know. Um, all I know is that here in Revelation, John sees that they are currently being stopped so that they cannot blow on the earth. Now, that is remarkable because our earth depends on weather like that. It depends on winds. If we didn't have winds, this earth would be destroyed. It is vital for, I mean, so many things that are, are you know, pollination. It's not just about being cooled down. Uh, so many things depend on it. So, um, Matthew uses this language as well to show that the elect are going to be gathered from all parts of the world when he says he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And in Matthew, uh, this is pretty much right after the seals as well. We went over that last week, how Matthew 24, we see all of the seal judgments. And it seems to be right after the sixth seal, then the trumpets are ready to begin. Right after the sixth seal here in Matthew 24, we see the four angels gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth, from one end of the heaven to the other. So maybe there's some of that going on here as well. Don't know. All I can see are these connections that we can maybe you know, connect the dots, but it doesn't give us the full picture yet. We don't have all the dots to make the picture form. Um, verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east. So this is a fifth angel. Having the seal of the living God. Now, this is not one of the seals of the seven seals that we've talked about. This isn't on that scroll. This is a seal as in a signet ring, a stamp, a marker. And it says, He cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So these four angels, there's no question that the whole withholding the wind, the purpose is to harm the earth. We don't know, and there's no way to know by the word that's being used here. It could be fallen angels who are given this power to bring the destruction, or, uh, or it could be you know, fallen angels, e either one. Because we do know, as we're going to see later, that there are angels who have been thrown in the abyss, who are going to be released, who have been reserved for this very time of judgment. So we do not know. But in verse 3 here it says that this fifth angel says, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So this is why this fifth, seal, or this fifth angel has a seal. He's going to seal people now. He's going to mark them as his own, his own treasured possession. 
one of my memory verses, and again, unless I get it started in the right spot, I'm going to probably not be perfect on it, but it basically says this, that he says to go and mark people, and he says, see that these are going to be my treasured possession in the day when I bring my wrath on the world. He says that the Lord heard and listened to those who honored his name, honored God's name, and a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence. And he said, they will be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And he talks about these godly people who are gathering together there, talking and honoring his name, who are grieved by the evils going on in the world, and God is listening to them talk. And he hears that, and he's glorified by that. He's magnified by it, and he says, listen, I'm going to remember these people. In the day when I bring my judgment on the earth, he says, they will be mine, my treasured possession. I'm going to protect them. That's what's happening here. And I should have had that verse, but it just kind of came to my mind here now. So Ezekiel recorded this event as well, and I think this is a good uh, parallel chapter to go read and that's Ezekiel chapter 9. I'm just going to give you the little highlights of it here. But we see kind of the same thing happening in Ezekiel as well because there are people who are grieved by all the evils going on in the world. And so God is going to spare them by sealing them, marking them. It says Ezekiel here in chapter 9 verse 4, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. So, this mark that is used here in Revelation 7, the Hebrew or the Greek word there is the same word as the, the tau, the, basically like a cross that was put on the forehead. And so, you know, we see sometimes Catholics, they'll put a cross on the forehead at Lent and so on. I, I, they get that from these verses. There is some legitimacy to that. Now, that is just by taking what that word is. However, technically, when we think cross, what this is, the tau, it's not a T like you would think. It's more like an X. Okay? If we want to be technical about it. Some people will even say that Jesus could have been crucified on an X or at the very least a capital T, not the cross that we always see. But I don't think it matters. I think there's a deeper meaning here than just the shape of whatever it is that's put on your forehead. What's put on your forehead and why it's put on the forehead versus other parts of your body is what's important here. I think it's the name of God that is put on the forehead. And we're going to kind of give you some highlights that are going to talk about that. But a seal denotes ownership. And so by being sealed, by God sealing these people, and you're going to see who they are, these 144,000, these are people who do grieve and who do lament and who are following the commandments of God. That's the people that are going to get marked. Just like in Ezekiel, just like in this other verse that I quoted where he says that these people who feared God and honored his name talked among each other. The Lord listened and heard and said, 
they will be mine. Because they feared his name. They honored his name. I don't think everybody who goes to church is going to be marked. It's going to be those who fear and love God, who have a personal relationship with Him, who follow Jesus. And you guys have been in this Bible study enough to know following doesn't just mean say, yeah, I go to church. It means to keep His commandments. Now, I know. I have to say this for people listening. I know you guys know this. You cannot keep His commandments and be a Christian because you keep His commandments. You're a Christian, and because you're a Christian, you keep His commandments. The commandments can't save you because if you're looking for salvation as a result of those commandments, you and everybody else in this world would fail because you have to keep them perfectly and nobody can. But that's not why you're keeping the commandments for salvation. You're keeping the commandments because you fear God and love Him and bring honor to His name. When we sang that song, Christ be magnified, how do we magnify Christ? By following Him. When we say in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, how do you hallow God's name? Only one way you can do it. Follow Him. Obey Him. How do you know what to obey? By His Word. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. What is the man of the Antichrist? A man of lawlessness. What has the church in general become today? Lawless. Oh no, we don't have to do that. That's legalism. That's the law. What, Jesus got rid of the law. No, 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 no. The Antichrist gets rid of the law. Jesus upheld the law and fulfilled it for us. And now we do the best we can because we love Him. Because He has saved us. So, regardless, when this happens, what we're reading here in Revelation, the godly are being singled out here. Just like in Exodus. And you're going to see as we move into these trumpet judgments especially, this patterns, Revelation is going to pattern Exodus completely. Moving into the promised land, going around Jericho, patterns Revelation perfectly. Just like we've been talking about cycles, the Exodus is a cycle. The same plagues that happen in Exodus, you're going to see. In Exodus, we see God made a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Here we're seeing God is going to make a distinction between those who fear God and honor His name and those who do not. It's that simple. So, why the forehead? Well, this is exactly where the commandments of God are placed. We've talked about this in relation to the third temple but looking at Exodus 38, verse 36, he says, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. Holiness to the Lord. This is for the priests. They were to make this hat and it had to have holy to the, holiness to the Lord on it. In other words, what's holiness? Keeping the commandments of God. Following God, right? And it says, You shall put on it a blue cord. That blue cord was the very blue that was, the Bible says later in Exodus, was a reminder of the commandments that was put in your tzitzits. 
that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban, so it shall be on Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. In other words, you had to have holiness to the Lord on your forehead. You had to be marked by God to be able to even bring things into the temple. If you are not marked by God, if you do not have holiness to the Lord on your forehead, that means in your mind and in your thoughts, then you cannot be accepted before the Lord. That is what this priest, that's why Aaron did this. This was a picture. Where does that holiness come from now? Well, Jesus. Not because you keep this commandment or that commandment, but because God has made you holy, now you get to keep those commandments. We even see here in Ezekiel 3.9, like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. He's talking about this prophet and how even though the world is wicked, you're going to set your face like flint, your forehead like flint, to where your mindset will not be changed. Your belief system is going to be holiness. Today, there are many Christians that walk around that do not have holiness to the Lord on their foreheads. Their mindset is of this world. Their mindset is of liberal, progressive uh, teachings, not of God's Word. And so this forehead is important because this is where our thoughts are. This is our mind. This is, you might even say, the spirit. I think that our mind in a reasoning capability of our mind is the spiritual aspect. Revelation 14.1, we're going to see these same people again, but uh, that are going to be sealed here in chapter 7. It says, And with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. What is written on the forehead? I don't think it's just a cross. They're marked with the name of God. So Revelation 14 tells us what this sign is in Revelation 7. You belong to him. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence. They will be mine, says the Lord, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. You belong to him. It's a seal of ownership. Verse 17, uh, verses seven, chapter 17, verse 5 of Revelation. Look what it says here though. And on her, this, this woman, on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. Remember I said Satan is going to do everything to mimic what God does? You see, God comes and he's sealing you with his name, but this harlot has Babylon, the mother of harlots, the opposite on her forehead, claiming who she is loyal to, where her thoughts uh, lie. And so there is a comparison here. The devil is trying to mimic. So why do you think that the 666 that we're going to be talking about later is put on your forehead or your right hand? Because that is exactly where the law of God is supposed to be according to the Bible. 
right? He says, and we'll look at these verses here in just a minute, but to put them on your forehead and on your hand. Bind them on your hand. Today, the Jews have made that such a literal sense that what they do is they wrap their arms up with this leather strap. It has not, you don't need to wrap your arm with a leather strap. You don't have to wear a phylactery on your forehead and walk around like a goofball. What he's saying is, is your, the law of God is supposed to be on your mind and in your service, in your actions. The devil, this whole 666, I believe there will be a sign. We'll talk about it later. I think that there will be a literal mark probably. However, I'm not so worried about the mark. Is it going to be this little piece of grain underneath your skin? Is it going to be a tattoo? Is it your social security number? Is it this? It doesn't matter. What matters is your loyalty. And the bottom line is you will not take that mark if you're loyal to God because you're going to see there's something wrong with it. Or are you just going to be loyal to a government? and buy into the lies of them. There's lots of talk that went on in regards to this vaccination of COVID. Was that the mark of the beast? No, that's not the mark of the beast. Okay? But I can see that as a picture of what it will look like, that people are going to feel like, well, I guess we have to. If we want to travel, if we want to uh, buy food, you know, our hands are tied. We're going to have to do it. We're going to have to compromise. Well, that's what it's going to look like. But the compromise is going to go against the Word of God. It's not going to be a, you know, just a vaccine. It's going to be something that's going to make you compromise on the Word of God. So, Revelation 14.9 Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Again, just showing you where the mark of the beast is supposed to go is the exact same place the, that God told you to mark your hands, your forehead, to remember the commandments of God. So, the devil has a counterpart to what God does here. Revelation 22.4, I didn't put it up here, but it's the same kind of thing. It says, they shall see His face, God's face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. The name of God. Not the name of this mystery Babylon the Great. Now, we'll talk more about that later, but this mystery Babylon the Great, I find fascinating that our culture is built upon Babylonian culture and traditions. And many of those Babylonian cultures and traditions have crept into the churches even. And so, we'll talk more about that later, but for now to plant that seed. Deuteronomy 6.8 is one of the verses that will talk about God's law being on our hands and forehead. It says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So, we see that God said, put my law on your forehead, on your hand. In Revelation, it says, what's on your forehead? God's name. Guys, I want you to understand, and this is something that I think so few Christians understand, is that God's law and God's name are synonymous. Because you can say, well, what is God's name? Yahweh? What about Jehovah Jireh? Or Elohim? 
or uh, uh, Nisi. I mean, there are so many. God has a name for every character uh, characteristic that he has. Yeshua. The, the, uh, the Word. And so, if the Word of God is Jesus, and Jesus is God, then the law is the Word of God. Having the law written on your heart or your forehead is the same thing as having God's name written on your forehead. How do you know that you are a believer of Jesus Christ? Keep his commandments. The, I mean, I could give you 50 New Testament verses that say that you know you deceive yourself. If, if you say you have no sin even, you deceive yourself. But also, if you say that you know uh, a tree is judged by its fruit, or um, in John where it talks about if uh, you know you don't love your brother, you don't know me. I mean, we can go on and on and on that says, how do you know? Uh, is it Corinthians that even says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith? How do you examine yourself? What are you going to look for? Are you going to look for whether or not you go to church every Sunday? No. The only thing you can examine is your heart, your mind. And what are you looking for? Are you sold out for God? Yeah. But there are people who, who can have Scripture memorized. I mean, I'll tell you what, some of those Orthodox Jews, they know Scripture way better than I do, or you know, probably all of us combined. And they're not getting to heaven. So you can't just look for knowledge. You have to look for fruit. Fruit is evidence of whether you truly know Jesus or not. But fruit without Jesus which is what we might say some of these Jews have, is fruitless. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, I take you down this road because this is going to be important in some of the things that I want to look at tonight. Could these people, you know, having the law written on their hearts and minds, coming to know the truth of God's Word... Is that maybe what this means? That God is going to seal these people? Is it just for protection or, just throwing this out there as a possibility, is it God coming and placing the law on their hearts and minds so that they begin to understand the truth? That they understand the Word of God? File that until later this evening. You're going to see we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Because there's some interesting things that this week have kind of come about that I thought, well, maybe. Maybe it isn't just a protection, but it's also a blessing in the sense of knowledge being put and placed in you. Remember Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant was, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You must start training yourself to recognize Israel and Judah and separate those two when you read the Bible because they're two different people, two sets of people. We'll talk more about that coming up. But he says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah at that time. Okay? 
It will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, says the Lord Almighty. This is the covenant I will make at that time. I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. That almost sounds like a ceiling, doesn't it? Yeah. And so I think there's a connection here that God is beginning to open the mind and hearts of people to say, wow, we have followed things of vanity, things of no benefit. Let us follow you. Zechariah 8, right? So, let's look at what this sealing is, in a sense. Part of this new covenant, I think, is Ephesians 4.30. This could be the Holy Spirit. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let me tell you something, you guys. You will not be able to understand the law of God if you don't have the Spirit of God. That is why so many people think that maybe I'm legalistic because I want to keep the Sabbath. Because they're not looking at it from the Spirit of God. They're looking at it from the law purely. But you see, if God puts that Spirit in us to have understanding, a proper understanding of what the Sabbath is all about, it's about Jesus, then there's a change that takes place in us. We see here in Colossians 2, uh, circumcision seems to kind of take a back seat to baptism. Baptism for the new covenant is the new sign or seal. It says in Romans, he received the sign of circumcision, speaking of Abraham here, a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So in the Old Testament, how were you sealed? Circumcision. In the New Testament, we're seeing here that we are sealed and, and there's a connection with baptism there as well. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So, the Spirit of God is involved in this. So by placing this seal on their foreheads and on their arms, just like I don't want you to think that the, the, the evil side of this and getting the 666 is, oh, they got the tattoo or whatever it is, they're going to hell. It isn't so much about the actual mark as what the mark stands for. Likewise, the fact that these people are being sealed, it isn't so much about the mark as much as what they stand for, who they follow, what they believe. And the only reason that they can do that is because the Holy Spirit in them. Without the Holy Spirit, I don't believe you guys could repent. I don't believe that you would even be capable of repenting of your sins without the Holy Spirit. And so... There's something about this ceiling. Now, with that said, I think there's a spiritual truth, but just like it's like an onion, there are many different layers to this. What I'm saying is not the only truth. 
there are many layers, and part of that layer is there seems to be a certain group of people here who are protected. 144,000. And that's where it takes us here next in verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So, now that brings us into another number of roads that we can go down. Who are these 144,000? Is this just a symbolic number that represents all Christians? A symbolic number that represents all Jews? Or all Christians and all Jews? Or just Jews? Or just Jehovah Witnesses? Right, yeah, yeah. As they would say. Well, I think that one we can rule out because their time has passed. Uh, so, yeah, they were... Their date was wrong, and so... Anyway, um, there are different opinions as far as who these 144,000 are. I don't know, is my answer. I can tell you where I lean, but there may be truth in both. Just again, as there's a literal physical that also has a spiritual application, a spiritual symbolic meaning and truth to it. It could be literally 144,000 Jews... But they are symbolic and picture of all believers too. That their sealing is a mark or a, a picture of all believers being sealed. But as far as what the text is going to tell us, the text says these are Jews. Which leads us now another fork in the road. Who's a Jew? Okay, We'll come to that in a moment. <laughs> I'm not going to cover it tonight because we are going to spend an entire evening pretty much just comparing this 144,000 and in a couple of these people groups to try and make sense of it. So for now, I'm going to keep the storyline and then we're going to jump back when we get to chapter 14 and give you some deeper thoughts on that. But for now, it the text says they are Jews. 12,000 from each tribe here are sealed. Well, not quite each tribe. You might note one's missing. Well, maybe even more than one. It depends on how you look at it. I'll come to that here in just a second. Um, if this was figurative, if it was symbolic, the pattern of Revelation tells us that it would tell us this. As an example, uh, in chapter 11, verse 8, we're going to see a city which is figuratively called Sodom, but it was where the Lord was crucified. So Jerusalem is going to be called Sodom. We see all throughout Revelation, he holds seven stars in his hand. Those stars are the angels of the churches. And they're walking along lampstands, and the lampstands are the churches of God. He, if there's some symbol, Revelation's pattern is, he tells us it's a symbol. There's nothing that says that here. In fact, it seems to be very, very specific, and we're not going to get to it tonight, but if you look right after this, it's going to say, and then I see a whole group of people from every language, every tribe, all people, but here, he's very specific, 12,000 from these tribes. 
So taking the text by itself, I gotta say these are Jews. Now, yeah. Well, but we also have like Joseph up here. We've got the tribes listed. So when I say that, I would say Judah and like Israel, Israel and Judah. Let me just kind of give you a couple of highlights here. Number one, we see Levi mentioned. Levi wasn't necessarily one of the 12 tribes because we had Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, but now Ephraim, Ephraim is not there. Manasseh is, but Ephraim isn't. And that's one of the highlights that I want to talk about tonight. Dan is missing. So you don't have Dan and you don't have Ephraim. Now, I think the reason for that is huge. And we could spend an entire week talking about it. We're going to spend 10 minutes maybe. But there is a difference to this day between Jew and Gentile. Now, We've already talked before how we, in a sense, are Jews. We are spiritual Israel, maybe not physical Israel. Some of you could be physical Israel. But we do become spiritual Israel when you become a believer in Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, We saw in Romans 11 talking about us being grafted in and that we have the share the same nourishing sap from the olive root that the Jews do. We see in John where Jesus was saying that you are not children of Abraham, even though that they were physically Jews. He says, if you were, you would obey. You would do what Abraham did. You'd, you'd keep my commands. He says, who then are Jews? Romans also says a Jew is not one who is born naturally, but a Jew is one who is one spiritual. A Jew is one who has the faith of Abraham. So if we have the faith of the Jew, you are grafted in and you become a Jew spiritually. With that said, however, God's still going to make some distinctions as he does here and as I will show in other places coming up. But the reason I think that Levi replaces Ephraim is Ephraim throughout Scripture are Gentiles. That's who they become. That may also be one of the reasons that these are Jews from the tribes, actual physical Israel. Okay, Because Gentiles aren't mentioned. Ephraim is not mentioned. Why is Dan not mentioned? One of the first ones to fall, and I'll give you another verse too. The rabbis to this day teach that the Antichrist is supposed to come from the tribe of Dan. Now, I don't know. They're going to get that from a verse that I'm going to show you. I'm not going to subscribe to that, however. Okay? Yes. I mean, you got to remember, Daniel's still there. The Antichrist isn't just a New Testament thing. They've got this throughout the Old Testament. So, yeah, yeah, anointed. Yeah. Genesis 48:19. Before I get to Dan, let's cover Ephraim a little bit. This is when 
the, the tribes of Israel are being blessed. And it says, he also shall become a people, speaking of Ephraim. He also shall be great. He's getting the blessing. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants, Ephraim's descendants, shall become a multitude of nations. Literally in the Hebrew, that word is goyim. To this very day, the word goyim is Gentiles. You would say, this is what this says, his descendants, Ephraim's descendants, will become a multitude of Gentiles. Does this happen? It definitely happens. Remember when Solomon is king, all 12 tribes are under the protection of the king of Israel, of Solomon. When Solomon dies, Rahab becomes king. And we see that he sends his men out to the ten tribes of Israel and they, they try to get him to be one. You know, the whole story of, you know, I'm going to, you know, my father, his, my little finger is thicker than his waist. And so I'm going to, he scourged you with whips. I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. So three days later, they come back and said, we're not following you to your tents, O Israel. And so those tribes split. Ten tribes, for the most part, left and they became known as the northern tribes of Israel or Israel or Ephraim in Scripture. The tribes that stuck with Rehoboam, primarily Judah and Benjamin, became known as the southern kingdom or Judah. And when we see in Scripture then, this is why we have oftentimes he says, so I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So when we read in Jeremiah 31 about this covenant that is being made, that covenant was made for the Gentiles and the Jews. Because at that point, Jews become known primarily as those two tribes. Because what happens to the ten tribes of Israel? You don't have a single godly king that rules them. Throughout the entire time, there's not one godly king. So God brings Assyria in, and Shalmaneser, and they come and they capture those ten tribes, and they take them back to Assyria and scatter them throughout the lands. They become assimilated into the population, and they are lost to this very day. To this day, they are still called the lost tribes of Israel. So what was prophesied here in Genesis 48, happened. They became Gentiles. I could probably show you no less than 50 verses, old and new, that when the Messiah comes, what is his goal? To bring one. Remember, we have the prophecies, I'm going to take the stick of Ephraim and the stick of Judah in my hand, and they will become one in my hand. The prophecy is that these 12 tribes are to be united again someday. So, let's look at that a little bit more. But a lot of these individuals wouldn't wouldn't have a clue. But God does know. Yep. And so, we're going to come there's let me hit Dan and then we'll go back to Ephraim one more time. In Genesis 49, when the same blessings are going on with these uh, families, Dan is a serpent by the roadside, it says. 
Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. It's so interesting because that's all it says about Dan. And it's like, he's going to be a viper. He's going to be a devil. And then, I've waited for your salvation. In essence, I've waited for your Yeshua. So, Dan, it's this verse that they say, you know, Dan, they were one of the first ones to rebel. Um, we see it was prophesied that they would be rebellious. And that's why they say maybe the Antichrist will come out of the tribe of Dan. Okay? Again, I'm not necessarily subscribing to that, but what's amazing is he says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. They're going to wait for Yeshua. And I love this because here in Revelation, Dan's not there. They, it's almost like, hey, you rejected them, God's going to reject you. But we see God's mercy and grace in this. Because look what it says in Ezekiel 48. Chapters 40 through 48 of Ezekiel is talking about, it seems like, the millennial reign in this new temple. And look what it says. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. Even though they're kind of cast out in this list, we see that because of Yeshua, there's going to be forgiveness and mercy shown to those of the tribe of Dan. They're there. But when it comes to this sealing, they're not listed. So God's grace and mercy is still found, his faithfulness to his covenant. He made a covenant with them, and he will be faithful to them. But I love the fact that it's mentioned there that they are talked about in uh, Ezekiel 48, just to show his faithfulness to his covenant. Because we'll come back to that. But in essence, guys, these people who say God is done with the Jew, there's a disconnect. Because if God's done with the Jew, He's done with you. Yeah. It's that dual covenant. <laughs> God's done with the Jew, He's done with you. Yeah, it would be a good shirt. God's covenant, He cannot break it. Is it Jeremiah or Isaiah? He says this, if my covenant with the sun and the moon can be broken, he says, then, only then, can my covenant with the house of Israel the house of David be broken. Only then. And in essence, this dual covenant theology says that you know, God came for us, He's rejected the Jew, says that the sun and the moon, God's covenant with them have been broken because... If God can break His covenant, then what, what's to keep you safe? That's why I think dual covenant theology is so demonic. Just one of the reasons. It is absolutely false. You cannot have dual covenant theology. It does not hold up scripturally anywhere. Let's look at Romans 11. That there is a distinction made here between physical Jew and spiritual Jew, or Gentiles. You will then say, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. The Gentiles are speaking here. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the physical Jew, he will not spare you either. 
Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell. God was hard with them when they were in unbelief. But kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. God is going to graft them in again. But here's one of my questions that I don't know the answer to, but is part of this sealing of these 144,000, possibly, I'm not saying it is on this, this is just my, me thinking out loud, is it possibly this, that they do not remain in their unfaithfulness? God is sealing them, putting His name on them, giving them the Spirit so that they begin to realize we miss the Messiah. And they've been being obedient to the commandments of God, but without knowledge, without understanding. And so they're still lost without that. But He's going to seal them to understand truth. Is that a possibility? I don't know. Okay. It goes on here in Romans, says this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel... Notice, he doesn't say Judah there. Just He says Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. In other words, they've experienced a hardening until the full number of them come in. And so all Israel will be saved. All 12 tribes. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. That is going to be all 12 tribes there typically. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, in other words, God's faithfulness, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, on account of God's covenant. So, a couple of things here, just that word election. I, I think election is, is more of a role. What I mean is this. When we elect a president, we elect him to do a job. And so the elect, God had, I think, elect that did their job, but failed to get to heaven because they rejected Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I won't go down that rabbit trail too far either, but just think about that. Again, this is not to say any Gentile believer is less important or less saved. However, God's promise to the Jews still stands. His role that He's using them for is different. He's using them for to, to be able to have mercy on both sides, ultimately. But God does not break His covenants. Um, let me take you to Ezekiel 43.10. All of these verses, I hope, will come together. I'm kind of going down three different roads right now, but they all mean the same to me. This is something this week that I was thinking about, and I don't know. This is, again, my thoughts. Take them, leave them. Whatever. Maybe correct me if need be. 
But here it says in Ezekiel 43, I've quoted this verse before, but he says, As for you, son of man, describe the house of Israel, to the house of Israel, the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, exits, entrances, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes, its laws, its whole design, all its laws, write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. I've always kind of focused on this aspect of this verse. We're the temple of God. And the spiritual aspect being, show the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed. Do people look at you and they see your godly lifestyle, the fruit of your faith, and you make them feel uncomfortable because of your holiness? There is that spiritual truth to this. But what hit me this week was this. Describe to the house of, not Judah, Israel. Who's Israel? Gentiles. Who's that? Us. Why is he describing the temple to people who should already know the temple? There's no point in it. But now, he's saying... And by the way, this is in Ezekiel. He's speaking to both, Jew, both Judah and you know, Israel and uh, Judah. But Israel didn't know about the temple. They've rejected it. They've been doing their own Gentile things. And so now Ezekiel is coming here in this millennial reign. There is a third temple that's being built. And he doesn't have to explain it to Judah, but he does have to explain it to Israel to the Gentiles. And he says, explain. Show them its exits, its entrances. Show them what it's all about if they're ashamed of their sins. If they're ashamed of all that they have done. If they repent and they realize, wow, we have been following things of vain, you know, of vanity, things of no benefit. We've inherited lies from our forefathers. If they realize that and they seek me, Reveal it to them. And, and not only reveal its exits and entrances, but tell them about the statutes, its design, its laws. Why? It says, so that they may observe, that they may carry them out. Is that what this is saying, maybe? That this temple in the millennial reign, God's going to have to take, okay, you guys have been a little slow on this. We need to have a little training period for you folks. And they're going to have a desire because they've repented to know. It just struck me this week for some reason. And in verse 12, this is the law of the temple. The whole territory of the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Now, if you've heard me talk about which priest are you going through these verses... We look at the priests of Abiathar and the priests of Zadok. Because what we're about to see here in Ezekiel 44 is that there are two separate priests. The priests of Zadok and Abiathar go all the way back to Eli, and from Eli it goes up to the time of David. And when David was king, there were two priesthoods serving, Abiathar and Zadok. 
Well, both of them followed in the first rebellion of David's son, but the second son rebels against David. Abiathar sides with the son, but Zadok remains faithful to David. Zadok is allowed, I mean, he's blessed. Abiathar, he's allowed to live. He's allowed to carry on, but he, his, he's removed from the priesthood. So now, that historical story, we go here to Ezekiel 44 talking about the millennial reign, and look what it says. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh, all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel, those would be true Gentiles, not the lost ten tribes. They shall enter my sanctuary. Okay? Or no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh can enter my sanctuary. If they're circumcised in the heart, they can enter. But the Levites, the priests, remember the Levites are listed in these tribes in Revelation. It says, but the Levites who went far from me, going astray from me after their idols when Israel, those Gentiles in essence, went astray, they shall bear their punishment. They shall be the ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering in the temple. So notice, they're allowed to live. They're allowed to continue to serve as priests, but where do they serve? In the temple, outside, away from the throne of God. But they're still there. You're going to see that these are the priests of Abiathar. It goes on. Because they ministered to them before their idols became a stumbling block of sin, iniquity, to the house of Israel. Therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, and they shall bear their punishment. In other words, these guys ministered, but they had so much corruption and bad culture in it that it was just bad. He says they're going to bear their punishment. They shall not come near to me to serve me as priest. Wait a minute, you just said they're serving. Yeah, they are serving, but they're not going to come near me to serve as priests. Nor come near any of my holy things, in the things that are most holy. But they shall bear their shame in the abominations that they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple. Basically the manual labor. To do all its services and to do all that is to be done in it. They're there but your cup isn't plumb full, or your cup isn't as full. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, again, a picture of who followed David when everybody else was going astray, shall come near to me to minister to me. They shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall approach my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. These people are close to the presence of God. So both are there, but one has a bigger blessing in essence. So I can't help but maybe make that connection. Ephraim was not listed there. But Levi was. Here we see Levites, but two separate sets of Levites. Those that 
have mixed the world and those who have been faithful. And those who have mixed the world, he says, I got to show you how all of this stuff works. You're going to have to go through a training period to understand. And I want you now to see, this is the way I'm looking at it, I want you to see me in it. You see why you guys were doing this? Because that was pointing to what I was going to do on the cross. You see, all of it, this was pointing to me. This is why I was having you do that for me. I don't know. I'll let you guys, like I said, rebuke me, correct me, add to it, help me out, whatever. All right? Another thing about these names, real quick, is the order of the names. Revelation 2.17 said, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. We get new names. All the Bobs, Mikes, Joes, Matthews are going to get a new name someday. Revelation 3 also said, To him who overcomes, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God. Is at the forehead. The name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. You not only get a new name, but God has a new name that has never been blasphemed, as we talked about before. So let's look at these names. Names have meaning. And I've talked about this before, so I'm going to go through it really quick because I'm about out of time as well. But in Genesis 29, when the sons of Israel are born, we see what their names mean. Reuben means, the Lord has seen my misery. Simeon, the Lord has heard. Levi, attached or joined. Judah, this time I will praise. Dan, God has vindicated me. You see the meaning of the names. If you simply make a sentence out of those names in order, this is what it says there on the right. Because, of the, because the Lord has seen my misery, he has heard or joined or attached himself to us. This caused Israel to praise God who vindicated them. They wrestled with God and now he had good fortune causing them to be happy. God rewarded his chosen people with the promised land, exalted them above all the nations so that he may add another blessing, the son of his right hand, Yeshua the Messiah. It gives the gospel in the order of the names listed there in Genesis chapter 29 and 30. Now, we jump to Revelation we see the same names, but they're now in a different order. And we've got Dan missing, and Ephraim missing, and Levi is in the place. And it changes it slightly. Okay? Manasseh is there, has made me forget my sorrow. Um, Levi, he has joined me. So here it says, we can praise the Lord because he has seen the affliction of his people. I, I've got basically in white the names and just kind of some fill-ins just so that you can kind of see where the add-ins are there. But we can praise the Lord because he has seen the affliction of his people. God looked down and granted them good fortune, made them happy in a chosen nation. However, they wrestled with God, turning their backs on him. This wrestling brings repentance. They return to the Lord as Romans said they would. So they will forget their sorrows as God heard their prayers once more when he has joined the Gentiles to the covenant tree through purchasing and rewarding those who have faith. God exalted us by seating us with him in the heavenly realms. This was done by adding to us the son who is seated at the right hand of God. 
The slight difference is the difference between Jesus' promised coming and his post-coming. One looking forward to, and the other, it's fulfilled, and the Son of His right hand has come. Okay? So, maybe that's part of why the names are different here as well. I don't know. But, something to think about. I can tell you this here. Um, in Ezekiel 34, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I myself will search for my sheep and I look after them. So, so what he's saying is, the pastors, you might say, aren't doing their job. So Jesus is going to go look for him himself. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. On a day of clouds and darkness, I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I'm going to give you a small sampling here of all these verses saying that God is going to go out and he will take those ten lost tribes and bring them back to make them one. And that's what we're seeing with these twelve tribes being listed now. Technically, there's no way that could happen after the Babylonian fall, after, after they were assimilated in, the Samaritans that the Jews hated so much were of the tribe of Ephraim. They were uh, Gentiles. They were called Gentiles, but yet they were some of the lost tribes. And yet this is why Jesus goes to that woman, the Samaritan woman. He's trying to gather the lost sheep. Ezekiel 36, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. 1 Peter 1, To God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout all these countries. Again, he's not really talking about the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the main two there. He's talking about the tribes of Ephraim, the lost tribes. Look what he says here in John 11. Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, those two tribes primarily. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. We already looked at Genesis 48, Hosea 1. The Lord said, Call him Loami, for you are not my people. Speaking of those lost, those, those ten tribes, and I am not your God. Keep in mind, though, in Hosea 8, he says, Israel is swallowed up. Not Judah, Israel. Israel is swallowed up. They're scattered. They're assimilated into the world. Now she is among the nations like a worthless thing. But then he later goes on and says, I will call them not, or call them my people who were not my people. I'm going to bring them back, he says. Romans 9.26, It shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, they shall be called the children of the living God. Well, who were called not my people? Ephraim. Now they're called children of the living God. John 10 other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Jesus is speaking. 
also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall be one fold and one shepherd. Jeremiah, I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You discipline me like an unruly calf. I've been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, show them the design of the temple. Isaiah 11, the, the envy also of Ephraim shall depart. The adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Jew and Gentile will become one. Romans 11, and so all Israel will be saved. When he talks about Israel has, has experienced a hardening in part. Ezekiel 47 you are to consider them as native-born Israelites when they uh, settle among you. So when you take on Judaism again, you might say, but under Jesus, you become a native-born Israelite. And it says, in whatever tribe the alien settles there, you are to give him his inheritance. Somehow you're going to settle under a certain tribe. Zechariah 8 as you have been an object of cursing among the nations, O Judah and Israel, so will I save you. You will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. Um, notice, O Judah and Israel, I will save you. Both of them. Amos 9, For I will command and I shall shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. Um, I'll just keep going. Nine, numbers 9, An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must do so in accordance with its rules and regulations. You must have the same regulations for the alien and the native-born. No dual covenant here. No different rules for one or the other. Leviticus 19, the alien living with you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I'm Lord your God. Isaiah 14, aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. The Gentiles are coming in, those lost tribes. In Matthew 15, when Jesus came, who does he himself say that he came to earth to die on the cross for? I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Interesting, isn't it? Okay, Galatians 3, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. It is because of these things that there is a group of people out there that will tell you, if you are a believer today, you did come from one of those lost end tribes. You just didn't know it. I don't agree with that, personally. I do believe, however, that a majority of the people who believe today, that very well could be the case. However, we cannot ignore Rahab, Ruth, they were not of the lost tribes, and they were brought in. That's why you have aliens as well that are going to join them. Hebrews 12 says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral, godless like Esau, who is for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as an oldest son. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. The reason I'm pointing that out is notice to the church of the firstborn. Who are the firstborn? Exodus 4, verse 22. The Lord says, Israel is my firstborn. Isn't that interesting? 
Revelation 21, we see there are 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates. On the gates are mentioned or written the 12 tribes of Israel. So if all believers are going to go through their tribal gate, it's not as cut and dry as we'd like to make it because what about Job, Noah, Abraham? They, they weren't necessarily in a tribe outside of maybe you would say, well, Jacob comes from them, so they're going to automatically go into the Levi or I, I don't know. But just to show you, it's not as cut and dry as it is, but God knows. God knows which tribe that you're going to belong in. Um, Isaiah 56, talking uh, to Gentiles as well. I love this because it's that Ethiopian eunuch who is, you know, reading the Bible, and then Philip is basically carried to him. He's reading Isaiah 53, and he doesn't understand it. Philip goes, explains Yeshua to him, says, hey, this is about Jesus. He's come, he's died, he's rose. You're saved. He must have left just joyful. And I'll bet he continued reading his Bible. And just right after that, he would have run into this. And keep in mind, he was a eunuch. It says, to the eunuch who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Notice he's going to take them to his holy mountain. Remember last week what I talked about with the rapture? What the different views of that? Where are they taken? It seems to me to the holy mountain. Those that go are the ones that are following God. Gentiles. That Gentile was a follower of God. He kept the commandments of God. He just didn't get it all. And now Philip comes and tells him this. And this would be like, oh, he's speaking to me. It even says, you know, don't call yourself a dried up tree and all of this. It would have spoke, it was like a letter just written to him. Again, Exodus 12, an alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised and he may take part like one born in the land. Okay, under the new covenant, Basically, it's when you believe on Him, we're baptized in His name, you become like one born in the land. So, uh, I've actually gone through these objections a little bit. Uh, so, I, I won't cover that again, I, I think, just to save time. Romans 11.15 says this, Remember, if they're the Jew, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, because Jesus came through the Jew, right? What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? I love that verse because what he's saying is this. If the Jew had rejected Christ and whatnot, and because of that it allowed the Gentiles to have the gospel, which is what he says there in Romans. Don't be conceited. Don't boast over the branches because he says if their rejection meant good news for you, what is their acceptance going to be? First of all, it's saying God is going to accept them again. God is able to graft them in again. They will be accepted. But what does that mean for you? It means the Lord is coming back. What will their acceptance be? The resurrection. I think this is in part talking about the timing. Their rejection was reconciliation for you. But their acceptance, which Romans says, when are they going to be accepted? At the end. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. Okay, Israel has... Uh, uh, received a hardening in part 
until the full number of Gentiles comes in. And then all Israel will be saved. When the Jew begins to realize, or maybe coming full circle here, when they are sealed on their foreheads, possibly, this, why the 12,000 from each tribe? Because that means the Lord's coming back. It just so happens here in Revelation, chapter 7, after the sealing, and all of these Jews seem to be coming back, <coughs> we're getting into the trumpets, and what the Lord comes back after the, it seems like the sixth seal. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and so the timing fits. When the Jew comes back, look up. And it'll be resurrection from the dead. That is the key there. Um, side note on tribal inheritance, and we're done. If a man dies and leaves no son, turn his inheritance over to his daughter, it says in Numbers. Uh, Numbers 36, also speaking of women who marry. They may marry anyone they please as long as they marry within the tribal clan of their father. No inheritance in Israel is to pass from tribe to tribe, for every Israelite shall keep the tribal land inherited from his forefathers. So these peoples coming in from the lost tribes didn't even know they were Jews. God knows they'll be put into the one that they were assigned to to begin with. The other thing is this. A woman who is married assumed the tribal identity of her husband. That's one reason, in a sense, why a woman takes on the name of her husband today. All right? This is why the Gospels do not give us the genealogy of Miriam. Okay, of Mary. Because it instead traces the line of Joseph. Because her marriage to Joseph made her pedigree irrelevant. So it explains how Gentile believers like us, can come in and have an honorary state within the people of Israel as well. Because when we become believers, Messiah, Yeshua, becomes our husband. We are the bride of Christ. So that makes your pedigree irrelevant, in a way. Okay? So, just some thoughts. Again, two weeks in a row, I go long. I am really sorry. 